I know how the three of you met. What I don't know is why you parted. It was love, of course. Love is the poisoner of reason. He's our greatest teacher, I think. Leonardo da Vinci taught us to observe and that it's our job as human beings to discover, to find, to question. It's constantly seeking truth. He's such a famous scientist and artist and it was really interesting to look at his backstory because they're kind of historical figures you don't tend to hear about or read about the backstory. You're just presented with, here's the Mona Lisa. You don't really get to see the person. Welcome to Leonardo, the official podcast, episode three. I'm Angelica Bell. If you've come to this straight from watching episode three of the drama, I know. What an ending that was, as Leonardo's patron, Ludovico Sforza, showed his true colours to the world and devastated Leonardo in the process. Lives are saved and lives are lost in quick succession in Renaissance times, all dramatised with the grand scale of that play within a play. The stench of demon breath, the kiss of an angel. The audience must feel it all. We'll be looking into the real life of the Duke of Milan and how poisons were used in our next episode. But this time, we'll be learning more about why da Vinci felt compelled to study so many different disciplines, such as his intricate work as a set designer and composer, which is displayed in episode three. Leonardo wrote his own music. He created his own libretto as well. That's director Dan Percival, who will explain how they overcame some of the artistic challenges of making a drama about one of the world's greatest artists. Not least with the art, but it helps if the actor playing Leonardo is also a keen painter, which happens to be true with Aidan Turner. If I showed you some of the paintings in the room right now that I was painting today, you would be fully convinced that I could definitely not paint like Leonardo da Vinci. That's one of my latest. <laughs> See that? <laughs> and widening out what we can learn from Leonardo even further, in this episode we will uncover what it means today to be a polymath like da Vinci from Wakas Ahmed, author of The Polymath and founder of The Da Vinci Network. A polymath is somebody who actually makes connections between different fields or disciplines that they operate in, either consciously or subconsciously. Time to start. Are they ready? Uh, are we ready? Yes. Yes. No. Smoke. We now know that not only was Leonardo da Vinci a botanist, engineer, artist, but he was also a skilled designer of theatrical sets. In episode three of the drama, we get an insight into how he developed some of the stage trickery that would have been difficult to pull off in the 15th century, let alone today. Director Dan Percival is the one who had to wrangle those theatrics for the screen and make it look effortless, which of course it wasn't in reality. But before we get the details, a little scene setting of our own from Dan. Right, now Dan, I want to take you back to the very beginning because I want to know what was it about this script that made you think, yes, <laughs> yes, this, this, this is for me. This is the one I want to get my hands on. Well, Leonardo da Vinci has always been such an enigmatic figure. I mean, I come from a family of painters and writers and I, I'm a painter and writer too. And, and I remember even as a small boy being astonished by his work purely from a point of view of 
ability and gift to create art of such enormous wisdom and detail and consideration to create art that felt so real you could lift it off the canvas. And that's where he became most revolutionary and most known. And of course, we take it for granted now, but it was a phenomenal achievement in its era. There was something about the way Leonardo paints hands that no one else does, no one else can do. And I remember trying to learn how to draw a hand and constantly going to Leonardo paintings and, and trying to copy his hands because they are so perfect. They're so soft and delicate and beautiful. Have a look next time at all his hands. It's crazy brilliance. No one else can do it. So I'm thinking, Dan, you thought, I'm going to take this project so that <laughs> you could one day perfect your hand drawing skills. <laughs> I, I, maybe. I, I don't know. I think, I suppose I'm, I'm rambling now, but it, the simple answer to your question is, what an opportunity to get into the mind of one of humanity's greatest creative geniuses. An artist must observe like a scientist, but create with fantasy. And that story takes place in heaven and hell, where one must effortlessly become the other, for they are both sides of our nature, good and evil, just as God created us. And the audience must not merely see this, but they must feel it. One of the scenes, or I should say one of the episodes that really struck me was episode three, um, the recreation of Fabula di Orfeo, yes. uh, which was incredible because, Dan, I was watching it going, oh my goodness, they have put a set within a set. I, and, and it just looked incredible. So what was your vision for that? <laughs> I, is there a story behind this? There's a little laugh there. There is. I mean, there's several stories. We, we had a production designer who left the show called Francesco Figueri, and, and he did come up with a concept for the stage design, which we largely kept. And he had been obsessed about how Leonardo had done this because he created this rotating stage. We take rotating stages for granted now. But in Renaissance history, it was radical, it was revolutionary. It was, no one had done anything like that. And it had all these giant gears underneath it, but also he wanted, he wanted hell and heaven and he wanted to create these, these special effects and mechanical birds and things like this. So we, we came up with a stage concept, but then where to put it was really, really challenging. We, we must have had four or five different locations we were going to build this stage. The first place was, there's a palazzo called Caparola, which you see in the film, which has this circular courtyard. And our first design of the stage was to put it in the circular courtyard of, of Caparola, which was our Milan palace. But it was phenomenally expensive to do that because you can't just build a set inside a palace. They, you know, it's going to take you months and uh, you have to pay for every day you're there, closing it to the public. And then we ended up thinking, well, we're building a fantastic piazza in our back lot why don't we just put it in there and it worked perfectly and then we changed the design to work with it i like the idea oh do tell us more you will be amazed there's a machine which um, i think leonardo would rather it be a surprise oh come now <laughs> there will be plenty of time <laughs> but one of the great things about it was that there are these um vents in the ground which was inspired by a, a, an actual piazza uh, within a palazzo we went to, and we went under it. You see Leonardo goes underground and looks up while he's imagining what he can do with this space. And we keep the secret of what that is until you find out that he just put all his gearing mechanism in there, turned the stage from underneath and set fires through the grates and, you know, astonished everyone, dazzled him. But of course it ends with such high drama and <laughs> fireworks and... Fire! Fire! <laughs> fire! <laughs> 
dogs. And the other challenge was the music, recreating the music. It was, Leonardo wrote his own music as well. I don't know if you know this, he was a musician. We don't show it in the show. No, I didn't know that. But he created his own music, his own libretto. So our composers started working on that quite early. We had this wonderful Italian theatrical director who helped me create that and he designed a theatre performance. So that was great, because that's not my skill. Uh, he'd just show me these little set pieces he'd worked out, and then I'd go, that's going to work great, thank you. And then I just had to work out where the flame shot up. <laughs> well, listen, you can't be good at everything, Dan. <laughs> Hades agreed, but on one condition. Orpheus must not look upon her until they left the underworld. But it did, and Eurydice vanished forever. It was just the vibe of it and the feeling that really drew me, and I think that's... Is that what you want people to go away feeling? Yeah, I don't want people sitting there thinking, oh, God, I love the way they did that art, or I love the set, or I love the location. I want people to just love the story and to connect with the characters and... And in some ways, I'm a bit contemptuous of all that. I have a, a great deal of attention to detail to everything that's going on and all the layers of background and all the kind of, and the authenticity of it. And then when I'm filming, I just want to throw it away and the lens is all about the characters. And um, that's just my style. I don't, um, I don't really want the audience. I just want them compelled. I want them to feel connected and to enjoy it. It's entertainment, but it's entertainment on a subject that, it's just glorious to tell, you know, it's a glorious story to tell because I do think it's important that we understand these great historical figures as frail human beings. I must be the creator of a world within a world. Period drama can either be, try and be incredibly historically accurate or it can be very impressionistic and I kind of fall somewhere between the two, if you like, that you know, we can't literally accurately recreate every detail of the past. If we did, they'd be speaking in ancient Florentine, which was a dialect of Italian, you know, when they, and you literally would have shit running in the streets and things. So uh, we don't need to go that far. But one of my no, biggest... No, we don't need, we don't need to go that far. <laughs> one, of my, um, one of my greatest influences, I've always, I love doing period drama, and I love, I love leaning into what I would call the authenticness of it. People didn't have shampoo... People didn't use makeup in the way you did. They didn't have the personal hygiene they did. They wore their clothes day in, day out because they were very, very expensive and they were all handmade. They were designed to last. But it means the collars get greasy and the, and the fabric gets worn and then they fix it and they patch it up. And I wanted everything to feel lived in and worn and real. And, you know, there's a tendency with period dramas, not all period dramas, there's a tendency with a lot of period dramas, and it's great fun at times, but to be very proscenium, very theatrical and tableau, where the set design and the wardrobe and everything look spanking new and fabulous and gorgeous and big, big shots of all that. And that's fun and that's its own thing, but I wanted it to not really think about that, but to be in a world where the experience of it was real to us. You're not, you're not dazzled by the period details, you're just in it. 
And the way it was lit was all natural sources. So I wanted to shoot it with the light that Leonardo worked with. The sun's no different now than it was in the 15th century. It's, it comes through a window. But what was that window like? And, and the, the windows were small and, you know, not made of clear glass. They were made of little round pieces of glass that we, we lit from outside the sets. And we used firelight and candlelight if he was working at night. And, and you very quickly start to realize that the photographic style starts to replicate the kind of paintings we know from that period because the light's only coming through this narrow beam. Have you ever noticed how candlelight differs from sunlight in its color and intensity? <clears throat> Incredibly, I've never given it a thought. <clears throat> There's more than one kind of light. Isn't that astonishing? You were us all out with your endless questions, Leonardo. Drink. Before Leonardo, art was much more expressionistic. It was much more influenced by classicism and the way people sat or behaved or modeled or, or the way light fell was, was artificial. And what he did was push it into the real. So our cinematographer was working with all of the things Leonardo would have had. There's a scene in the second episode where he's painting Ginevra da Benci. And I have this wonderful book of Leonardo paintings, which is huge beautiful reproduction plates, and I studied every piece of art. And you'll see how Leonardo will capture the reflection of her gold on a collar will be just caught in the skin tones on her face. And so his attention to the way light falls and behaves is so intensely real. And it's by using non-direct light and bounces, and you see him, he has a, a white cloth on an easel that he adjusts to catch the reflected light, to just soften the contrast on her body. It's just a tiny detail, but it was a lovely little thing to be able to put in there. What are you doing? These are the pigments I'm going to use to paint you. Where did you get them? Don't ask. His art is crafted by the materials that are available to him. The, the paintbrushes were all handmade by our props guy and the and the paints themselves, we had this amazing artist who was trained in Renaissance restoration work, who oversaw all the creations of our stages of art. That was really, really important to me was, you know, every episode actually has hundreds of pieces of art in it. All the preparatory sketches, all the sketches by the other um, students of Verrocchio Studio, or all the stages of any one painting he does. There may be 10 stages that we see in the development, whether he's doing the cartoons that then go on the wall and then you peel it off. I think in episode five, you see the whole process of the building of the Last Supper. And then in episode seven, you see two more giant murals made. And the stages have to be planned out. They have to be painted. They have to be <laughs> created. And, and then all the way to the finished version. And there's so many stages of layers of paint. So I had to become, we had to become an expert in Renaissance painting techniques. But I wanted that to be real. Do you know what, Dan? I can't even imagine the copyright issues you were faced with um, and the licensing agreements. And so how did you get around that? You know, was it a massive sticking point? I know for a fact that you can't just replicate artwork like that. What, you know, who did you have to speak to? Well, some, to, to be honest, it's very, it varied. Uh, a lot of it was more accessible than you think because it is, you know, 400-year-old art. And, um, and we weren't trying to do prints necessarily from it. 
We weren't, you know, the finished works of art were actually rarely seen. <laughs> and we'd paint them ourselves from multiple sources. So there was no one source we had to go to. I think there were some museums that owned the rights to reproduction of the artwork, but most of them were, were quite accommodating in allowing us to do it. I think they, they all saw us on the side of the angels in terms of educating the world about the art. One or two were less so. It was a complicated process, fortunately not one I had to do, but I, I don't, didn't once get a call saying no, except for one creation of The Last Supper that was done, where someone had digitally remastered it. And as you know, The Last Supper is completely degraded. And so no one quite knows what the true colours were or what the true detail was, because it's almost an impressionistic version of what was there. And we had to create the finished one. And someone had spent years and years and years creating this sort of immaculate, you know, tiny pixel version of The Last Supper that was probably the closest reproduction there was. So can we just buy that and, and print it? And that, that's, our, that's our finished work. And it's, no, they wouldn't, wouldn't let us do that. So we know that Aidan likes to paint, and so do you as well, Dan. But were there any times during filming that you were both able to get time to paint? It's actually, I was sent a photograph by one of the set photographers, and I'm, I'm doing some painting on the Mona Lisa with him watching me. And I thought, oh, God, how cheeky. That is hilarious. <laughs> I'm improving the Mona Lisa here. <laughs> Keeping our focus now on the artwork, Matilda De Angelis, who stars as Katerina next to Aidan Turner's Leonardo, cuts right to the chase. So, Aidan, in the series you, you paint a lot. I do, I do. How can you convince the audience that you are capable of painting like Leonardo? If I showed you some of the paintings in the room right now that I was painting today, you would be fully convinced that I could definitely not paint like Leonardo da Vinci. That's one of my latest. Hold on. <laughs> See that? Well... <laughs> Look at that mess. More Kandinsky than Leonardo da Vinci. It is a bit more, isn't it? I mean, I'll take that. How difficult was it? Yeah, I mean, he's the greatest painter of all time, arguably, right? And about a week before... I went to Rome to start shooting. There was a Leonardo da Vinci retrospective on in the Louvre. They had a lot of his paintings there. Frank Spotnitz, our writer, creator, producer, he got me a ticket. Myself and my wife went to see it. And it just turned out, it was, it was early in the morning. It was like an 8.45 show. I, I just thought it was going to be jammed with people, obviously pre-COVID and all that. And, um, and we arrived and there was like 10 people there who went in and then took a right, which was the wrong way to go, and they were lost and they went and got coffee and pastries and did their thing there. I don't know why they were there. And we took a left and we went in. I was just myself and my wife in the Louvre with Leonardo da Vinci's paintings and uh, one security guard. So we, I got to spend an hour with all of his paintings. And like, one of the things that really, it was poignant and, and, and so profound. And, but one of the things that strikes you when you're right next to his painting is, is the skin tone. He, he paints... He paints a colour and he manages to blend these colours that are so realistic and, and so flawless and delicate. There's a fragility to these faces. All of them have this. Like the very first one, his Verrocchio painting with the angel, it was something everyone remarked on. I was like, that looks different. That, and, and Verrocchio, you know, famously says, you know, the falcon has become the falconer or however that phrase goes. That doesn't sound quite right. Um, but... <laughs> but uh, so the falcon has taught... The Falconer. 
these paintings look like the highest definition photograph you can imagine, just the detail. And that's one thing that's so astounding is like, how did a human being do this? Like, how, how is this physically possible? It's, it's, doesn't, it seems beyond a skill. It seems beyond training. It just, it seems out of this world. It really does. And, and they're still so perfect, these paintings. And you're getting up close. You can't see any brush marks. You can't see the blend of colors. You just see this beautiful progression or degradation with the blends into something else and into, uh, you know, sharp lines that just, they don't, I, it would have to be, your brush would have to just have one hair on them to even get some of these tones and shapes and, and, and stuff. So that was, it, it, yeah. So knowing, going, walking around the Louvre and just like in awe of all of, of this spectacle and being the only people there and, and, you know, quite literally sitting with his paintings for, for minutes on end. Um, going, how the hell am I going to do this? Like, if I can't even understand how he did these paintings, how are you going to get into who the man was? And that's essentially what we want to do with this show. We we know the great works, but we want to get into who this man was, what's in his heart, what's in his mind. So that was hard for me, and it was really intimidating. Like, in some world, you would think it would help being there, and it was great, but it made things almost more difficult because you think, I just, I don't know if I can understand this. I mean, you saw the trash that I just showed you right now that I've been doing <laughs> no, today. Well, thank you. But it's fun. And, and it's, and I love expressing myself through painting and on canvases and it's, it's go crack. But this is a, it's a totally different world. And his sense of beauty and beauty being nature, you know, you don't need to dress things up. You don't need to put bells and whistles. You don't need to make things look more beautiful. They already are, thanks. Like, you know, he would say, God has done it for us. You know, it's already there. It's in nature. Go to nature. And then he would do that, you know, and, and paint such realistic, beautiful portraits and paintings. And so, yeah, it's difficult. But what we did have, we had this amazing um, art department on our show led by Alessandro, I believe, and he, he was incredible. I mean, that's when, in some ways, the, um, everything, the, the ground sort of moved under me when, you know, we started rehearsing and I, was, I met Alessandro and we went into his studio and I saw him sketch and I thought, oh, shit, it is possible. Like, somebody can do this. You know, he, he was doing them and to my eye, they were almost exactly, his sketches were almost like Leonardo's. Like, they were just nearly there and some of them really were there. So I thought, God, this is incredible, you know. And then, and then I saw his his from his sketches to his, you know, the the color palette into his paintings and some of the um, the demos for the paintings. And I thought, this is incredible. Like it's a huge amount of work for one person to do, but he's doing it and he's getting it done. And so a, a lot of time was spent with him, basically, uh, just watching him sketch and watching him paint. I just seeing could I emulate that? Like, how do you know? It's like everything as actors. Like, how do I not look like I've just learned this? Like, that's what we have to do. So, you know, hey, here's a horse, ride it. And you got to, oh, I don't know how to ride a horse, but I'm going to have to, regardless, I'm going to have to look in 10 minutes time like I've been doing this for 10 years. And it's the, it's the eternal struggle for us. You know, we want, that's what we always want to try to do. Look like you're a pro in five minutes. And sometimes it's easy and sometimes it's more difficult. But I felt like it was a give and take. I sort of had to, in some ways, forget about why he was doing it, why he was making these blends and colors and glazes and do, and, and just see how he was doing it. Just look at the way he was curling his hand around. He's also, he was right-handed, but he would do it left to show me and it'd be slightly different with his right. Um, how, how he positioned his body with his legs and his, where his weight would be. Um, he would use, uh, God, the name escapes you now, but that, that, clever little stick with a pillow at the end of it you know that you rest your wrist on one of the first times i'd really noticed that properly and used it and it's bloody great 
um, you know, it really works. Um, but yeah, so it was um, it was hard, and of course he's left-handed and I'm right-handed. But it's it's one of those things you just you just keep practicing, and and it's the delicacy. And then I would go back in my mind to that day at the Louvre and seeing the paintings, and you know, no matter how brilliant this man was you can only assume that he was going at an absolute snail's pace you know it's it's just the tiniest tiniest paint a little piece at a time that you're painting and you're mixing the colors a lot of the time under candlelight you know it's impossibly hard to imagine but yeah you you know you're when you're playing him you have to start from somewhere and and, and from your imagination is, is and from working with alessandro's is where you are so yeah i don't know if that answers your question but there was a lot involved in it um but, uh, but yeah, certainly Alessandro was a huge help. Seeing a real artist do it helped. Uh, we actually started at the Verrocchio studio. I saw Aiden going from like a very stressful state. Like he was mental, 100%. Like, <laughs> but you found it. You found it. Yeah. Yeah, I think I found something. It's one of those things too. It's weird when you look back at it now and you think how intimidating it all is. And, and you know, when you're playing the part you know for the two of us I'm sure it's the same when you, you don't allow that bit in you just you, you just get on with it you know I mean in respect to him and and you just go for it you you have to be involved and you can't be worried you have to trust that the homework has been done don't you at some level you're like okay we did that we've you know I think there was a workshop for a week where we were doing painting class with Alessandro I don't know how present I was in that literally um but it existed um yeah, so it, there comes a stage when you're just there. And then, you know, naturally when I was on set, I remember that started happening where I would just pick up the pen with my left hand and you would just, you would naturally do things. It, it felt very strange. I remember the first week a continuity person would, you know, tap me on the shoulder and go, just remember you use your right hand there in rehearsal. I'm like, did I? But then as days went on, it would just, it wouldn't be that anymore. And it felt very strange to hold a paintbrush in my right hand or a pen. It just, it's not something I would have done. And even to this day, when I start writing, I can, you know, scribble something with my left hand. I'd, I've done it for so long now, well, for months and end, that it, it, it doesn't feel as weird. You know, it doesn't feel as foreign. Oh, good lines. Good form. Thank you. But it lacks heart. Sorry, sir. You've drawn only what you saw. You must learn to draw what you feel. Think about it. So, Leonardo was a celebrity in his own day, Matilda, right? Mm-hmm. Do you think he struggled with, with any of that, being a celebrity? Back in the days, I think being a celebrity was a bit more... It was different. It was really different. I guess Leonardo was a celebrity, but he could have his life and his privacy. He would work in his studio night and day, have a commission, do it, and then that was it. The pressure was even more, I think, strong and big, but his private life maybe was a... Uh, was a bit more safe. There'll be more of Aidan and Matilda to come in future episodes, but if you are following along and have reached episode three of the drama, you've met most of the main players by now, bar one or two upcoming surprises. But just how do you assemble a cast like this? How can you be sure that the mix of actors on screen is going to work? Let's find out. What's your name? My name is Victor Jenkins and I am a casting director. 
So, Victor, how does it work? Presumably you get sent a script, you read the script, and then your creative brain starts bubbling, going mad, thinking, ooh, who could do that? Or who'd be right for that? Is that how it works? Yeah, I mean, the beginning part is a lot of fun because we get sent something, you know, if you're... If, even if you're just meeting on the job, you get sent the script and you get to read it. And you get to read it like you're reading a book. You know, when we all read books, we imagine the people, the faces, sometimes people we know or film stars playing in our heads, depending on how you, you read and how you think. Yeah. And it's kind of a, a version of that. You know, you're reading it and you look at the characters. And if you've not been given any context, if no one's been attached already, then you've got free reign in your head to think about who might be right and sometimes it's a natural thing you kind of your, your brain naturally goes somewhere when you're reading something so with leonardo did you have a little note next to the script saying how about this person how about that or did you have free reign free reign oh wow had free reign on it yeah which is which is great because you get to read it and you get to know the project before you start talking about the actors so you get to you know you have a conversation with the director and the producers and what we tend to do when we go in for first meetings we'll be sent the, the scripts, normally one or two episodes, and we'll do a long list of ideas with pictures and sometimes some credits. But, you know, because we, we know we have our idea, but we've also got to fit it in with the director and the producer and the other people that also have ideas. And it's about us presenting people they may not have thought of, but also people they could have thought of. And then we work out amongst ourselves which way we want to go. And it is, it's a collaboration. It is always a collaboration. And there are certain things where you go... I definitely want to have control over this part, so I'm going to let you have that part. Um, mind games. I've got a psychology degree. It's very useful. Are you the next Leonardo? <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's painting. Actually, my painting's in the background. That is, that is it. <laughs> Are you the artist? Yes, yes, I am. So let's go back to that drawing board you had then. Mm-hmm. What were your initial thoughts? What I liked about it was a journey of discovery for me in terms of finding out about the character. It was really interesting to look at his backstory because the kind of historical figures you don't tend to hear about or read about the backstory. Um, you're just presented with, here's the Mona Lisa, here's the picture of man, here's a weird helicopter thing that he invented. You don't really get to see the person. So, um, but no, it's it really, it really interesting to read the script and enjoy the story. And then once you enjoyed the story, then you think, oh crap, I've actually got to do something with this and cast it. Um, <laughs> yeah, you've got a job to do, Victor. You've got, you've got a job, job to do. do. Yeah, yeah. It's like any job. Getting the job is the fun bit. Then you've got to do the job. I've just been discussing you with my wife. Yes. A troupe of actors have come here to perform Poliziano's La Fabula di Orfeo. For our nephew, who's a rather sad young man. He's insufferably miserable. He's in great need of cheer. A dazzling spectacle would be just the thing. Part of your job is also to convince agents and actors that this is the right project for them. We sit on a very fine line between production and the actors. And, you know, we support the actors and are on the, very much on the actor's side, but we also have to work for the production because they're the ones that are paying us. And our position is quite privileged in that we have an understanding of what people are up to. We understand where they might be in their career because we follow them because of theatre and watching the films and TV. So we have an idea of who might want to do something like this or who is too stratospheric now or who might want to spend time in Italy you know, all those kind of little nuances that we, we get to hear and understand. And, um, and yes, when you're going through your ideas for the cast, you have to be appreciative of the network is going on, the audience they're trying to reach. And there's lots of conversations with this where it was about who would mean something to an Italian audience. Ah, okay. As much as an international audience. And, and, the, and the differences between that and who might be famous in Italy, who you may not think is as famous around the rest of the world or in the UK or in America. 
Um, so there's all that to play as well. So it's a real casting as a, as a role is is creative. It's accounting. It's to do with budgets. It's to do with um, viewing figures. All these things we have to think about. It's a real kind of combination of a lot of different jobs. Okay. So from your perspective. What was the process um, in casting Aidan and getting him on board? So that was about doing the lists and, and going to uh, Rome and speaking with Luca and Dan and Frank and Emily at Big Light and just discussing kind of who felt right for it. And I think um, off the back of Paul Dark and also Desperate Romantics he did years ago, you know, he's played an artist before. There was just something about him. He fit very well in terms of the age bracket. It worked out for him. I know his agent, um, Richard Cook, very, very well as well. So we had to have a very honest conversation with him about what he might want to do after Paul Dark finishing. It was just synchronicity, really. It all kind of worked out nicely. He's been far too busy to see me. But I'm sure that will change once the theatricals are over. Matilde came on quite late, actually. She was a kind of a network conversation because she, you know, and she's fantastic. And off the back of The Undoing as well, it's, it's really, really good to have her in the show. Yeah, because she was cast before we'd seen The Undoing. Yes, correct. Yeah. So in a way, it's interesting because she was known to some people, not known to others. Mm-hmm. And for her, that was a massive break, but she was already doing this. It's a weird, it's that weird thing. And there's something, and that's something that we, as you know, casting directors, that's what we get to know sometimes. And it's a, sometimes the bane of our life as well. We know that someone's going to be in an amazing film or they're going to break out in something. And trying to convince, and especially more independent film, to cast someone, because you know that by the time their film out, their other film will be out and there'll be a massive start. Um, and it is about kind of finding those, those people. And it's, um, it's that weird limbo thing for actors where you've got stories, but no one's seen it. So no one can tell how good you are or not. Um, and you've got to work, um, and your film might not be out for a year. I need to make this theatrical the most spectacular ever seen in Milan. My future depends on it. Could you please leave? Bit, you've worked on a wide range of themes and genres in casting, and it'd be interesting to know what sort of considerations come into play with period casting versus non-traditional casting. The interesting job as a casting director is that we have to push the boundaries and we have to push our producers and directors sometimes to highlight these things you know we are the people that are fighting for inclusivity and diversity within our productions we have to be the people who will say why are all these parts male why can't this person be someone who uses a wheelchair Uh, we are constantly trying to do that and push that and I think when it comes to period pieces I think it's 2022 next year by the time things come out it's been 2022 and so you've got to create things for a modern audience. And I think to do that, you know, unless you're telling a story which is specifically about race or identity or disability, then actually, just because your history books tells you a certain backstory about a character, who gives a crap? You know, it's if, you're, if that's not the story you're telling, you should be able to cast freely as to whoever is right and who actually represents the people that are watching it. Masks and fireworks, that's what you need. It's what everyone does. I'm hardly impressed with what everyone does. Why didn't I protest? So do you think that it's it's important for you to challenge sometimes some of those Absolutely, absolutely, yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And that's, you know, we've had, you have heated conversations sometimes. And it's not that the people that are fighting against that are bad people. It's just that they, you know, there's some people get locked in their ways and there's a certain amount of, you need, everyone needs someone to remind you or to tell you or to push you or to 
or, or to help move those boundaries. And that's a, that's a collective thing. This is just so fascinating. It's interesting. It's even making me think about different people I've watched and seen and yeah. thought, what, well, that's why they've been chosen. It might not have been my first choice, but I can see why. I refused him. You did what? I turned him down. And he said he never makes the same offer twice. And you didn't think to mention this before we left Florence? No. So, as an overview of Leonardo, mm. are you pretty pleased? Really pleased, really pleased. From what I've seen of it, it looks fantastic. And I think it's a really nice mix. And, you know, we lost a couple of people because of COVID and, and changing schedules. But the replacements are equally good, and I'm, I'm sort of delighted with, with how that's worked out. And it's, um, I can't wait to see the whole thing. I'm, uh, the, the paintings are impressive in themselves. I mean, the fact they actually recreated the paintings. I think people forgot that that takes time. It's not a printer, you know. <laughs> Someone's actually got to paint these things. But no, as a cast, uh, yeah, it's, it's a really fun, eclectic little mix of people. I should be discussing the mysteries of nature and people, not painting baubles for tomfools. To end this episode, we wanted to get into the mind of a polymath. We've already seen from episode one, Leonardo display his talent for constructing the Duomo in Florence. And here in episode three, he presents himself to Sforza like this. What brings you to Milan? It was pretty clear last time we spoke, so I know you can't be here to beg my patronage. That was when you approached me as an artist, Your Lordship. Today, I come before you as an engineer. Da Vinci was a polymath, an expert in many disciplines. But is it a term we would use much today? Wakas Ahmed wrote a book on the very subject entitled The Polymath and founded the Da Vinci Network, which aims to change the culture of singular specialisms and move towards a society where people are encouraged to try and learn many subjects. So my name is Wakas Ahmed. I have a background in the sciences as well as the arts, um, so in neuroscience and in visual art, but also I've had a career in international affairs as a diplomatic journalist and now I have started a, uh, a new consulting and training company called the Da Vinci Network, which I'm sure we'll discuss um, a bit later. A polymath is someone who excels in multiple fields or disciplines, someone who is exceptionally versatile and who moves seamlessly through different fields of knowledge, different professions perhaps, and is able to do so uh, in a manner that draws information, ideas, from each discipline and perhaps uses them in other disciplines. If we were to go a bit deeper, uh, the higher form of the polymath is somebody who actually makes connections between different fields or disciplines that they operate in, either consciously or subconsciously. And so they're actually, in a sense, a synthesizer of knowledge, not just someone who moves frivolously between them. I believe it's a man's duty to make everything around him beautiful. Surely you agree. Duty and truth, yes. Oh, come. We both know the truth needs decorating to be palatable. During the Renaissance, you had uh, various court cultures that promoted this kind of polymathic sense of being. If someone generally talented, generally intelligent and generally trustworthy were to enter a court, 
they would then be asked to contribute to different fields that they felt they could add value to. And so trust of the person and the person's general ability was uh, more important than just confining them to one particular field. So those courtiers that were multi-talented and did have uh, this kind of um, curiosity that was boundless ended up being able to express themselves in this way and add value to their court. Um, So Leonardo, for example, was able to do so in many respects as an artist, as as an engineer, um, as an inventor, as a scholar. So as a result, someone like Leonardo was able to do that. And there were others during that time and during that period that were. Um, So I think, yes, it was generally the general appreciation from the patrons and the court culture of the fact that people could be uh, multifaceted and multi-talented. Remember back in episode one, when the Royal Collection Trust Martin Clayton told us about Leonardo? Many people who know Leonardo as an artist will be surprised to learn, I think, that he wasn't just a painter who had a little interest in the sciences on the side, but had he never painted a thing in his life, his anatomical drawings would mark him out as one of the great figures of the Renaissance, regardless of his activity as a painter. He would be seen on a par with Galileo, for example, as as one of the great scientists of the post-medieval period. And the anatomical drawings are the works that allow us to give him that accolade. We all have the potential to become polymaths because we're all naturally versatile as human beings. We're also all naturally multifaceted. We have different sides to us that are there to be explored and nurtured. Um, Unfortunately, in the world that we currently live in, which encourages specialization and compartmentalization and so we don't get the opportunity to fully explore our many sides and fully nurture and enrich our many sides so actually if we were given that opportunity through the education system through our work environments through our general culture um, which promotes that kind of many-sidedness then i believe that many more would um, come through as polymaths and be recognized as such Back in episode two, we heard from Freddie Highmore, who said something similar about how it's a shame that the arts and sciences tend to get separated in education. You can choose one or the other. But calling yourself a polymath is something that's still hard to digest, even for Wakas Ahmed. I would not consider myself a polymath, firstly because I feel I have a long way to go before I can even dream of calling myself a polymath, and secondly, I don't think the culture of referring to oneself as a polymath is a very uh, helpful thing. Uh, I think polymath is something that people ought to strive or aspire to become and allow others to then place that label on you if you have... um, achieve that. But I do think that people should be consider themselves polymathic. I think everyone should consider themselves polymathic to some degree. Uh, it's a descriptor um, rather than uh, an adjective. But if you're listening to this and you're thinking, hang on, might I actually be a polymath? Then you're not alone. So the Da Vinci Network was born on the 2nd of May Uh, 2019, which, as many Leonardo fans would know, is the 500th death anniversary of Leonardo da Vinci. And the reason 
um, why it exists or why we set it up is because we wanted to keep this kind of spirit of um, many-sided inquiry and many-sided being that Leonardo exemplified alive um, through education, through employment, as well as through popular culture. We want it to become a more acceptable thing for people to um, to pursue many lines of inquiry, to pursue many subjects, disciplines, professions, and to be interested in them at the very least, or even pursue them to in, in greater depth. And so we work with um, various educational organizations, as well as various employers that wish to foster that kind of culture within their organizations. And um, uh, we do that through consulting and training of various types. We're developing courses. We also help people with something very important, which is uh, information anxiety. Um, Because of the amount of information that's um, available to many people through various sources, online and offline, it's become difficult for people to ascertain what's uh, important, what's unimportant, what's necessary or unnecessary, what's truth or what's falsehood. It's become a very difficult predicament to be able to navigate the information age. So we also help people develop a framework to be able to do that. That's what the Da Vinci Network is. It's to it's it's to kind of provide those services, but in doing so promoting and fostering a culture where it becomes acceptable for us and our children to develop interests and make contributions to uh, multiple fields and disciplines. I mean, there's so much it seems we all still have to learn. But there's a more pressing matter up ahead in episode four, when we go deep into what it was like to be a woman living through the Renaissance. Spoiler alert, it doesn't look good. This is not the end of your story. This podcast was created by Sony Pictures Television and Sony Music's Fourth Floor Creative in association with Lux Fide. Produced by Natalie Jameson and James Deacon, Edited by Chris Attaway, sound mix by Mark Pittam and production support from Barney Lee.